Again, we thank you for today. We thank you for creating uh, the Lord's Day. We thank you, Jesus, for um, giving us this day of celebration, this day of remembrance, looking back, and of anticipation, looking forward. Thank you for the, the time that we get prior to the main service in Sunday school and that we get to um, uh, look at your holy scriptures, in particular, how it was organized and um, and what we can take from that um, and apply it to our lives today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're starting a new series. This series is going to be a little longer than most of the series we do because we are going to cover Old Testament themes. That is to say that we're going to look at the theme of each book of the Old Testament. And so the series is going to last 25 weeks. Now, why would it last 25 weeks and not 39, since there are 39 books in the Old Testament? That is because we are actually doing it in the order of the Hebrew canon, which means two things. First of all, uh, the 25 includes this week, which is introduction, so that isn't, this, is, this is more of an overview this week. Uh, so that gives us 24 to cover the entirety of the Old Testament, and in the Hebrew canon, we're not, they, they not only put the books in a different order than what we have in our Bibles today, but they also do not use any of the first and second type things. So when you get a Sunday school class that's on the book of Samuel, it is on the entirety of Samuel, the entirety of Chronicles, the entirety of Kings. That's one class. So when you look at, uh, when, when you look at the Hebrew canon, those are not there and then also there is something special about the way that they chose to order the books. And uh, I hope that you um, see the value in that. And I'm going to cover some of those elements today of, of why it can be helpful for us to just know this and how it actually can apply to the way that we study Scripture today or even hear sermons in the New Testament by having some of that knowledge about the construction of the Old Testament. Now, if you already have a bulletin, here is another reason that we're doing this. Is Let me see if I can find it here. If you open our bulletin that you get every week, Look, if you open it up on the right page, under Statement of Faith, you will see that it says, We believe the Bible to be the only authority in all matters of faith and practice. And then it goes on to talk about the summary of the 1689 that we hold to. But if God's Word is the only authority in that regard, then perhaps it's in our best interest to get a good handle on its entirety and not just part of it, especially in light of the fact that the Old Testament, content-wise, is approximately 80% of the entirety of the Bible. So anybody that disregards uh, the Old Testament or neglects the Old Testament is essentially taking 80% of God's Word that we you know, you will see something similar to what I just read in our bulletin as a, as a portion of, of church's statements of faith that God's word is authoritative, uh, and yet they take 80% of it and treat it as though it no longer counts 
and it's that it's not worth studying, and we don't want to do that. So my question to you, and this does not require the microphone to go around, I will just repeat your answers here, but um, since we know that unfortunately many people and many churches neglect the Old Testament, what are some of the reasons that people do that? Why do people just choose to stick exclusively to the New Testament? What do you got, Wayne? Oh, it's mean. Okay. Yes, mean and violent. The God of the Old Testament appears to be a different God, and it's one that we don't want to acknowledge or to try to have to explain, maybe, that kind of a thing. Stephen? Okay, the New Testament replaced the Old Testament, right. So it's, it's unnecessary, in a sense. Yes, antiquated. Very good, very good. Sean? New Covenant completely replaces the Old, therefore making the Old essentially obsolete, unnecessary. Gerald? Ah, holiness and judgment are, are not, they're not in vogue, they're out of favor, we don't... We don't want to. We don't want to look at those things. I saw some. Hey, Gary, what do you have? Yeah, yeah. You have to bump up against all that holiness, law. Yikes. Okay, Jane. Irrelevant. Very good. Yes, yes. It feels very irrelevant, very distant. So some of the. Um, um, uh, a quote I have here. So one is, so I totally agree with all everything that's been said. So length and diversity. And here's a quote from Tremper Longman the uh, third. Uh, as far as this isn't how he feels, but what how others feel. The Old Testament narrative is often punctuated by genealogies, law codes, religious regulations, poetry, wisdom sayings, and occasional repetition. So it's really long, and it's boring. Right? I mean, it's like, really? The Old Testament? Um, The other, and I believe this touches on what some of you were saying, it talks about a distant and a foreign culture. Uh, The quote here I have is from um, a text called The World and the Word. It is, quote, it is, after all, a collection of writings in an ancient Semitic language spanning a period of a millennium and addressing and describing a world distant in geography as well as in time, close quote. So in other words, it's like it happened so long ago to a people that have nothing to do with us, with all these strange, you know, cultures and traditions and like what, what connection does it possibly have to us? Rob Roy. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so people want to track their genealogy. They'll commit years of their lives to Ancestry.com. Um, but when it comes to God's word, completely hold it at a distance and say unrelated, unnecessary, uninteresting. Uh, you look like you have... Ah, yeah. Right, right. 
the yeah the very commercials of those technologies ancestry.com and 23andme that's the connection they make hey this is my history this is what i now know about myself the very thing that they're appealing to to get people to use it is the same thing that people say about god's word uh, why not to you better grab the microphone I'm, i think people are uh michelle go ahead I've had other Christians tell me, like, when I, like, um, you know, it says, like, like the Lord's name in vain, right? He won't hold them guiltless, right? So it says that. And then you say, like, oh, like, I try not to say the Lord's name in vain. Like, I'm working on that. And then they'll say something like, oh, that's religion. That's not relationship. Right. And then right. they'll use the word, like, Pharisee, legalistic. And I'm right. just like, so do I not respect what God assigned in the Old right. Testament. How, do, how does so then the it old, makes you right. feel like condemned because they called you a Pharisee. And it's like, I just want to try to respect what the principles are of my Father in Heaven. Absolutely. So that's when I like, I guess I get like ashamed of it. To, so that's why sometimes I, I guess I compromise a tiny bit to say anything when someone says it. And yeah. like if someone says the Lord's name in vain and they're actually a Christian, I won't say anything because I'm just like, I don't want to be that person or, you know, right. but then I'm so, like, I have to be. So how this connects to what we're doing then is making sure that instead of hacking off the Old Testament and getting rid of it so we don't have to deal with it, yeah. the better idea is to understand it so that we see how it connects to the Old Testament so yeah. that we can apply what it is God said in his law yeah. to... And I feel like Jesus got even more, like he didn't come and say like, Oh, like who cares about the law? He said he got to the heart of the issue. He didn't. Correct. He didn't. So then I realized I'm like not even to have external hate is one thing, but to have internal hate is worse. Right. So it's like right. yeah. So it's that's what I see it right. as, and I yeah. And I have these struggles in day to day life with other Christians too. Well, so yeah. Uh, uh, we all do. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Janet has something back here. Um, I've heard women show disrespect for the Old Testament because they believe women were not correctly treated and represented in the Old Testament. So they want to get rid of half, more than half of the Bible. That's a great point. In fact, I would say that that is one or, you know, things about slavery or uh, the wars, you know, going in and wiping out entire families. And it's like, well, that's... What do we do with that? We don't know what to do with that, or we're embarrassed, or how do we get God off the hook? All of those kinds of things that can be difficult to, uh, to deal with if you don't have a familiarity with the Old Testament. So the good news is, after my introduction um, in future classes, Pastor Nick is going to sort all of that out for you. So you won't have any questions whatsoever after he's done teaching. So... Um, Another reason is that, and I believe it associates with what you were saying, and maybe in particular what uh, Michelle was getting at, which is the Old Testament can be difficult to interpret and then also difficult to apply to present day, or people think of it that way, and therefore they, it's, it's like, well, maybe, maybe the way to look at it is it's too much work. People don't want to do work. <laughs> you know, it's like, how about I just stick with the sermon on, you know, they even take the New Testament and narrow it down even more. But the reality is that the more that you truly and earnestly and genuinely study the New Testament or you even reduce it down and you become a red letter uh, theologian only or something and only look at the words of Christ, it, it will always take you back to the Old Testament. 
You cannot get to the New Testament without the Old Testament, and the New Testament itself always points back to the Old Testament, which is pointing forward to the New Testament. So it's a, it, uh, it, it, it's, it's a, a, a holistic thing. All right, and the, other, and the other nice thing is, as far as difficulty to interpret and, and to apply to present day, um, at least here in this church, of the four pastors that are uh, preaching um, consistently here, only one of us is preaching out of the New Testament. <laughs> the other three have uh, chosen to preach from uh, the Old Testament. PJ's preaching from Daniel and Nick from Exodus and Mark from the Psalms. So praise God that, uh, that we've got that going on here. But, so besides it comprising uh, about 80% of the Bible, other reasons that it would be important to study the Old Testament is that, first of all, the Old Testament still teaches us doctrine and ethics that apply to us today. So finish this sentence. This is a quote directly from Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. When he says the law or the prophets, he is talking about the Old Testament. And we're going to see that design here in a few minutes. But when he says the law and the prophets, he did not come. So to the comment of some people thinking, well, it's, it's all new. And so that the, the, the law, the old covenant is now obsolete and it is completely unnecessary. And that anything in that 80% of the Bible is just kind of, you know, dead um, is absolutely incorrect. Jesus himself said he did not come to do away with that. And so, Stephen, if you would read Psalm 19, 7 to 9. This is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Go ahead. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. All right, so this is God's word. It endures forever, and that is the same word that Jesus is saying that he did not come to abolish. It continues to be pure. It continues to be clean. It continues to be right. It continues to glorify God. Another reason that we want to uh, continue to study the Old Testament is that actually the Old Testament points to gospel salvation. And even though um, it doesn't use the name Jesus in the Old Testament, we know definitively that there is the gospel in the Old Testament because we are told that in the New Testament. Um, Luke 24, Brooklyn, Luke 24 Read verses uh, 25 to 27. That's what that says. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, so... The Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. Again, when you hear it referred to as Moses, that is a direct correlation to the law, the prophets. And so Jesus is explaining, and this is on the road to Emmaus, and he's explaining to them the Old Testament 
because they were, they, they were confused about what had happened with Jesus, and he then shows them the truth about himself by expounding the Old Testament. And then go on to, in that same chapter, to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, the law of prophets, the, uh, or, uh, the law... Uh, of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. They are fulfilled in Christ. And then even more specific, Caleb, in 2 Timothy three fifteen to 17. Go ahead. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, Jesus, uh, in Christ Jesus. All scriptures got breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All right, Caleb, question. Who wrote it? Who wrote that letter? Oh, Paul. There you go. All, all your fans out there. In the world. All right, so Paul's writing this, and he's talking about the fact that there are sacred, sacred writings that point to salvation, and those sacred writings then are the Old Testament that he's referred to. They've been raised on that. Okay, that's, I'm done with you, kid. I'm done with you for now, so you can give the microphone. There you go. So that's those sacred writings uh, suitable for the gospel message are the Old Testament. And then third, the Old Testament gives necessary background to understand the New Testament. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 1. So right at the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And what does it do? It starts with a genealogy. And that genealogy connects specific people. It connects David to Jesus. So theoretically, the New Testament could have started at verse 18, right? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It could have started there, but it did not start there. It started at verse 1 and includes the genealogy that continues through verse 17. And genealogies are these bridges between things. Anytime you run into a genealogy, just think of a seam. It's connecting things. And so when you see this, you realize, okay, this is a genealogy, which means something new is happening. There is a new chapter, in a sense. Uh, there's a new episode that's going to take place. And a genealogy is there to create a connection between the two. But not only does it serve as a seam and, as, and to create a connection, but each person that's named in the genealogy to varying degrees are like their own little zip file. There is a compressed story inside that name. They, each one, have their own history. Now, some of them, we know next, you know, how much do we know about Hezron, the father of Ram, or Ram, the father of Amminadab? I, I don't know that we can find too much. But what we see is that along the way, they connect with those that have much larger histories that are found in the Old Testament. So, when we look at Matthew chapter 1, and verse 1, we see who is at the center of what this genealogy is, is even all about. 
It's Jesus Christ because it, verse, verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then it's associated with the other two kind of big players in that genealogy, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we already have a context in one verse before, as the New Testament is beginning, it's already taking Jesus and sending its roots into the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it continues on through there to give the genealogy. So there is, in one sense, that forensic connection, you know, like, like uh, empirical or forensic type connection that says, okay, here's the line that kind of makes it legitimate. And we go so far in that direction that, that, that in our modern age, we want to say, well, hold on, there, there have to be names missing from here. Are we sure that this is exactly right? And so it's providing answers to that in some regard. But the more important thing is that there is a theological connection to specific people within the genealogy that's listed. So I mentioned, uh, in fact, in last week's sermon, I used the phrase redemptive history. That's a term that we, uh, that we tend to use. And that automatically, that phrase, to remind you, is, is used to say, we assume that God is over all of history and that there is redemption in that, the, the, the uh, um, analogy I used was crease because God is unfolding time. And as God unfolds time, the crease, the major crease of that unfolding is what Christ accomplishes in redemption. And so we say redemptive history. So if that is the overall big picture of the Genesis to Revelation picture, then when we look at these genealogies, we can see how those connect. A genealogy provides this wide angle lens for us to um, understand those things. And so as you move on down then to ver- in Matthew 1 to verse 17, it says, so all the generations, and then it again connects right back to the, to the people that the chapter started with. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So we come right back to the main three players in, in uh, Matthew's account of Abraham, David, that point to Christ. And yet there are all these, in a sense, uh, sinews or you know, uh, you know, other parts of the body. You, know, you have Boaz and you have Ruth and you have Jesse, and all of these people are contributors to this redemptive historical story that God is unfolding. And so when we look at those things, I know that genealogies, if you're just reading through them, can seem boring, but at least if you see their purpose and you realize the connections that are taking place, then first of all, you give more value to reading the genealogies. And second of all, we also are reminded that it makes no sense to rip the Old Testament apart and not connect it because it does damage to the new. We don't, we don't do that. We don't cut all of those tendons and sinews that connect um, the old to the new and the new back to the old. Okay. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let me show you also another way that this works in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. Oh, we have a different Cindy. I saw Cindy Sanchez. Oh, 
Oh. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm tempted to say yes, <laughs> just because that would be fun, but okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, we'll go see. with the two-eyed Cindy. <laughs> okay. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so I'm going to have to really move quickly through some of the material I have here, which is... The fact that God started by creating man, man and woman, and gave them a mandate to have dominion over a designated land. Those are the things at play. He created a specific people for himself to do a specific job over a specific area. People, dominion, and land. And then we see that even after the fall, the plan is for God to have a specific people to have dominion, to rule over a particular land, a promised land. So, again, going to the genealogies, if you follow the genealogies of Genesis, you move from Adam to Abraham, and then from Abraham to his grandson, Jacob, and then right there at the end of, I believe it's Genesis 49, so right at the end of Genesis, uh, Jacob says that his son, Judah, will have a descendant, and what is that descendant going to do? He is, so he is a specific people, Judah, that he is going to rule over a fertile land. That was always the plan in Genesis. And it ends with that, at the end of Genesis, it ends with this expectation where he says, hey, there's going to be a, per, a people, there's going, they're going to have a job of ruling, and it's going to be over a specific land. Now, the la, in the Hebrew canon, the last book is not Malachi, the last book is Chronicles. And in Chron so the two books that have the most genealogies, um, Genesis has 10 different lists, and Chronicles begins the first nine chapters with genealogies. And then what you find then in that list, throughout that list of genealogies in Chronicles at the end of the Hebrew canon is that it starts with Adam, continues down through that same spot there from Genesis to the tribe of Judah, Judah until it gets all the way to David. And David was that Old Testament fulfillment of the promise of a specific people that are going to do a specific job of ruling, which is what David was doing over a specific land. He had kingship, he had dominion. But at the end of Chronicles, what we have then is a future greater hope that is going to be in the line of David. So we have actually, and you've watched the, you know, in particular, Pastor Nick talk about this, the way the Jewish a way of communicating in literature works. They give you the, 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 the seed of it at the beginning, then they come back around and they give you more, and it has a much greater understanding. And that happens on a kind of a, a slightly more macro scale where we see that take place in Genesis. And then by the end of the Old Testament, 
uh, the, the Hebrew canon there, it is recapped with it having partial earthly fulfillment, but there still being a forward expectation, a forward hope of someone even greater that's going to accomplish all of that. Um, in fact, this is just this is just fascinating uh, uh, thing as well, which is you know there's you know when we read it in the order that we uh, that we have it in our Bibles, when you read Samuel and then you read Chronicles, you know there's all this overlap, and it seems like oh yeah we're repeating this. I don't know if you've ever noticed what the difference is largely between the two. There's something missing out of the Chronicles version, and it's yeah it's the bad news. You don't find in Chronicles. You find things about the Davidic covenant. What you don't find is the account about Bathsheba. So do you sit there and you go, oh, well, this, you know, what's going on? Why, um, you know, are they trying to hide? Is this revisionist history? Are they trying to do away? And the answer is no. If you think about how all of this is constructed, what's taking place is that Chronicles being at the end of the Hebrew canon is by starting with nine chapters of genealogies is recapping the entirety of the history of, the, of Israel from creation uh, to the patriarchs to the nation of Israel all the way to the Davidic covenant and ends with the hope that is someday to come. And now if you think about it in that order and then you go the very next thing you have is a genealogy in Matthew chapter one that reaches back to those things, it's like this, whoop, they just go right together. And so now you don't look at it and go, why the double, why this and that? Well, it's double because it's repeating everything from the Old Testament in a way, in that, from that wide-angle lens using genealogies and certain events from that time. So there's a reason that all of those things are uh, together. Stephen Dempster talking about uh, these, the two books, meaning Genesis on one end and Chronicles on the other. Consequently, these two books, which function to introduce and conclude the canon and which have such strikingly similar endings, keep the main storyline in view with two of its most important themes, dynasty and dominion, being realized through the Davidic house, close quote. And his book is called Dynasty, Dominion and Dynasty. Uh, I give you a handout there. Um, boy, um, all right, let me, so right there you have, uh, perhaps you've heard the term the Tanakh before. So uh, the Tanakh, that is the Hebrew canon. It, it includes all the same books that we have. But when they say, uh, when they say Tanakh, that's just referring to the three letters, uh, T, N, and K, or the, you know, the transliterated, T, N, and K. And so just so that you can pronounce it, you know, it's not tink or tank, or they say Tanakh, but um, so that's just where you have the, um, you have Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, and so that is your law, prophets, and writings. So if you want to look at that handout, Wayne, I forgot to keep one for myself. Do you have one? You can keep one. Thanks, bud. So if you look at it there, this is, they organized it in this way. Um, and by the way, this is what happened was, because we are much more like the Greeks, we like things chronological. We're very linear. And so that's the era that we live in, post-Greek world. So 
when the books were put in a particular order in the Old Testament for, that you are holding on your lap today, it's largely chronological. It's like going in to your computer system and say, I want to, you know, clicking on the button for chronological and then it puts it all in order. Now, I'm not saying absolutely everything in the Old Testament is chronological, but when you line the books up, that's why they're kind of lined up that way. And that's why you, it goes straight from Samuel's, uh, from 1st, 2nd Samuel and, and uh, Chronicles because uh, chronologically they, they happen near each other and you have that overlap. But when you look at it in a story, a Hebrew storytelling fashion, this is what you get, which is the first five books, the Torah, are the law, and then you have the uh, subsequent books there of the prophets and then the final group of books in the writings. Now, um, Brooklyn read earlier out of Luke 24, and particularly in verse 44, did you hear the, I'm I'm probably asking too much here, but do you remember the way that Jesus referred to the Old Testament? Do you still have it nearby right there? That's right. It was referred to as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, just like in parts where it says, you know, they have Moses and the prophets, just by saying Moses' name, it automatically includes the Torah. Well, in the same way, they could say, well, you have the Psalms, and it doesn't mean exclusively the book of Psalms. It means the writings. So right there, he is actually speaking of the Old Testament in this Hebrew canonical order. You have the law of Moses. You have the prophets. You have the Psalms. So in other words, you have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that's what testify to him. So that's how it is organized. And so just even having the snapshot, you may want to keep this folded in your Bible till you have it in your head a little bit. But now when you, when as these books, as you're starting to read the themes of these books, you can automatically know. So for instance... PJ is preaching through Daniel, you can look right here and go, okay, it's a matter of the writings, and it takes place in post-exilic times. So they are in exile, and you think about it, you're like, yeah, that's what's going on with Daniel, and it automatically helps you to, uh, to kind of place these things. All right, other things that are absolutely beautiful about the design of all of this and the design of God's Word um, plus, I did a lot of writing, so I need to make sure we use it. I'll read, because I know there are some of you who can't really see this. But this is, this is just unbelievable. This, so, this isn't specific to the Hebrew canon, but it gives you a sense of the design of, of God and how he unfolds uh, redemptive history. So, here's a quote from the book, A Biblical Theological Introduction to the Old Testament. Quote, the Bible has a covenant, as a covenantal document is also covenantal in its construction and design. The image of the picture puzzle that makes sense of the individual puzzle pieces, both in terms of placement and function, is covenant. The significance of the covenantal design of the Old Testament is reflected in the fact that the New Testament appears to have been arranged in the same way as a mirror reflection of the Old Testament. So, this is what it's... And I pulled this, um, this out of that same book, by the way. So, if, I don't know if you can see this uh, very well, but right here is the division between old and new. So you have in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, 
creation of heaven and earth. Then you have this marriage covenant, which is illustrated in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam and Eve, the bride comes to a garden sanctuary from which rivers of water flow to the nations. And then in Genesis 3, we have Satan's destruction promise. That's where after the fall, Genesis 3.15, the uh, 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 Satan's uh, demise is promised. Now you come to uh, Satan's destruction is accomplished, and that's going to be Revelation chapter 20. The marriage covenant, the lamb and bride, the bride comes to the city sanctuary from which the rivers of water flow for the nation. So that's B prime, and that is Revelation 21. And then at the very end, Revelation 21 and 22, the very end of the Bible, you have the new heaven and new earth. So again, you see, I guess using the analogy I was using before, this crease that takes place right here and how it is a mirror image, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 21 to 22. I'm like, there aren't 23. There we go. And so anyway, you can, you can see what I'm getting at and how there's this, this uh, design in history and in how it's communicated um, in the Old Testament. So to that point as well, if you want to flip to this side of your handout right there. And again, I pulled this. You'll see the source down there at the bottom there, Biblical Theological Introduction to the Old Testament. So again, when you see the design of the law, the prophets, and the writings in a similar way as this outline up here, we have that the Genesis... Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. A prime. Appreciate that. So what we have here then is all of this up here, right? Genesis is prologue, and all of this is epilogue, if you want to tie it to this handout that I've given you. So you have in Genesis uh, the prologue, and then the four, the four remaining books of the, the law are books in, uh, are, are four covenant books in the Old Testament framed by the birth and death of its covenant mediator. Who was the mediator of the law of that covenant? Uh, of the, uh, of the covenant of works. The, well, sorry, no, of Mount, Mount, Mount Sinai. Moses. So as far as how it is authored, um, as far as how is the law given, it is given based on, it, it takes place in Exodus, between Exodus and Deuteronomy. So Exodus 2 begins with the birth of Moses, and Deuteronomy 34, the end of that law, concludes with the death of Moses. And if you look at then the gospel you have, again, four gospel accounts that instead of it starting with, like, one to, to the end, it's the birth and death in, in different ways of Jesus Christ in those four gospels. Then you have how that, um, the interpretation 
of that covenant taking place through the prophets. So what does, what does the giving of that law mean theologically? The prophets describe it in the Old Testament and in, and in the New Covenant. We see that bearing itself theologically, out theologically through Acts. And then when you get to the writings and actual covenant life, like how, what are the nuts and bolts? Now you have in the writings the how to think and live by faith and light of the covenant to which we belong in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So you see how these things, how these things have a symmetrical, where to use the, the term, the Hebrews, the, the chiastic type structure. So, so um, this is, I, I know I've kind of covered a lot, I've said a lot, the main, uh, the thing I, I want to at least impress on you is that um, we could have just started with Genesis and said, okay, um, look, we're going to cover Genesis so that you just have more information about the details, but there's more, go, more happening, there's more, uh, more playing. In fact, you know, maybe if someone just asked you, do you like classical music, you say, uh, you know what, sure, I mean, I'll listen to it, but I'm not going to say I'm going out and purchasing classical music or anything like that. But then if Sean were to come up here and say, hey, do you realize, you know, in this movie score, in this particular scene, you have this music going on with this particular thread going through it. But then in this different scene where it goes from the, the, the conflict to the resolution of everything, it's the same music is running through it, but actually uh, the way, see, I'm butchering it, uh, but, but, but that there are, there are notes, there's connection through the whole thing. And you find out that that same tune has been played, but it's been emphasized in different ways. Um, I'm probably going to do more damage if I keep going with that analogy. But the point being is that when we continue to look at the overview of each of these different books in their Hebrew canonical order, Make sure that you're applying them from a wider view. We want to zoom down so we can look at, into the weeds, at the nuts and bolts, and the details of what does it mean in this particular verse. And we always want to make sure that that fits in the context of its wider scope of, of is this fit in law? Does it fit in prophets? Does it fit in writing? And then even pan out even wider and say, how does this apply to God's original Genesis 1 mandate and having a people of his own to have a specific job of exercising dominion over a particular uh, land or something. Yes, please, please fix me here. Uh, okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Maybe this helps to sum up what you were trying to say, and if it doesn't, please correct me. But um, what Pete, I believe, is trying to point out here is that form in art. Okay, this is form. This is artistic form that's in the scripture. It's a structure that's intentionally put together by God to have meaning. Um, not just surface level meaning, but deep meaning. Right. And, um, and um, in cultivated art, would be a music or other arts, literature, uh, painting, you know, it's structure often that, that gives that deep meaning. Um, that affords that deep meaning. It's a sophistication that 
affords the deep meaning that you don't get without that sophistication. So that's why this is so, it's important for us to latch onto that and, say, and not say, oh, it's too much for me. I can't, I couldn't possibly approach it. Instead say, Lord, how can I, how can I learn from this? How can I humble myself Amen. before what you have done and learn from this so that I can grow? Yeah. And how, how great, how great our God is and how beautiful uh, he is as a history. Uh, all right. <laughs> I left. Well, we're going to finish with what uh, um, your verses there, Gerald, because I just realized I left that out, and it will add to the beauty of what Jesus was doing. Okay, go ahead. What you're reading, Luke eleven forty five to fifty two. Mm-hmm. Yep. One of the one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all prophets shed from the foundation of the world may, may be charged against this generation." From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Okay, the reason I chose that particular reference is because in the context that Jesus is proclaiming this judgment is based on the murder of Abel, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah. So the first person to get murdered in the Bible was Abel. In the Hebrew canonical order, in Chronicles, or for us, Second Chronicles chapter 24, you have the account of of God, uh, the prophet of God, Zechariah, being on his so again you have this uh, totality of the entirety of the Hebrew canon that Jesus is automatically by just saying Abel to Zechariah either that or they knew we had translated it in English and it says A to Z so that works too so um, either way he's talking about the entirety of the Hebrew canon in just one brief reference like that and that's why it's helpful for us all right dear Lord thank you again for the for the time thank you for the breadth Um, for the symphony of your holy scriptures, Uh, just as Sean mentioned, for the glory that we can just take in, even if we can't understand it all, that we can still absorb it and appreciate it and do the best that we can to learn more and more. Bless us as we begin this journey through uh, looking at the themes of the Old Testament of the Hebrew canon. Bless the service, we pray, uh, that we have coming next. In Christ's name, amen.